this is Jonathan Box. Today I will be sharing with you my review of the book Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. This book was published in 2016 and is 344 pages long. Black Box Thinking follows Syed's first book, Bounce. He has written two books subsequently to this one being published. Syed is a UK-based writer and journalist who interestingly was the number one seeded UK table tennis champion for 10 years and he represented England at the Commonwealth and Olympic Games. The book caught my eye as many years ago I was part of a tech startup where we had co-developed software that allowed an aircraft black box data to be played back through a 3D model of the plane and its landscape. This was an absolutely fascinating project and working with real data from a range of flights, including some that had crashed, was, to be honest, a surreal experience. I was intrigued to know what Syed had to say on the subject. Note he is not a pilot, but does draw on the idea of the black box as a central construct in his book. The book is filled, and I do mean filled, with a wide array of stories and anecdotes ranging from bloodletting in the second century to the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team, from the Libyan Airlines incident in Israel in 1979 to Dyson vacuum cleaners. It takes a rare skill and, to be honest, a healthy dose of intellectual confidence to meld these ideas together. I think Syed does an admirable job. The opening story is a harrowing one, but I think it necessary that I pause the story here to set the scene for the book that follows. In 2005, a young woman, Elaine, enters a UK hospital for a routine sinus procedure. She says goodbye to her two small children and her husband Martin, and is wheeled into the pre-op room where the anaesthetist administers the anaesthesia. It is not uncommon for breathing to stop when anaesthesia is given, and through a device called a laryngeal mask, oxygen is pumped into the body during the procedure. The doctor struggled to get the mask into the patient's mouth as her jaw muscles had tightened, a not uncommon problem. He administered additional drugs to loosen her jaw muscles, but to no avail. By now, two minutes have passed. The doctor turned to an oxygen mask that fits over the face and attempted to get air into her lungs, but this too failed. He moved on to the next procedure, tracheal intubation, where a plastic tube is placed through the mouth into the airway to deliver oxygen directly to the lungs. As the jaw muscles were still clenched, he was unable to see the airway at the back of the patient's throat. By now, eight minutes had passed and the situation was critical. The anaesthetist was being assisted by the ENT surgeon, his, his assistant, and the anaesthetist from an adjoining operating theatre. The margin for error had shrunk sharply. One of the nurses, knowing what the next option was, being a tracheotomy, where an incision is made in the throat and the intubation tube inserted directly into the airway, she hurriedly collected the kit, informed the doctors and waited for further instruction. The doctors persisted in their efforts to resuscitate the patient, not yet calling for the kit. Ten minutes later, it was too late. The patient had suffered massive brain damage through oxygen starvation, and after being in a coma for 13 days, Elaine sadly passed away. The hospital communicated the news to Elaine's husband, Martin, saying, Look, there were problems during the anaesthetic. It's one of those things. We don't know why. The anaesthetist did his best, but it just didn't work out. It was a one-off. I'm truly sorry. 
This is a direct quote from the book. Martin, on inquiring about an investigation into the causes of his wife's death, was told that no such investigation would take place, as there was no reason for the investigation as the hospital was not being sued. Martin, an airline pilot, and used to the rigorous manner in which airline incidents are investigated, decided to pursue the matter further. What Martin discovered was that failure in the healthcare industry, like aviation, has a signature, a pattern of events that in hindsight could be easily detected. The difference, though, was that while the airline industry meticulously catalogue and act on these failures, the healthcare industry had no such mechanism or culture of sharing such failures, and so each incident is largely seen as if it is in fact a once-off. This book is not about Elaine and Martin's story, but rather the confluence of two industries that deal daily with people's lives, but in very different ways. This provides the backdrop for the book. The airplane black box. Actually, this is a bright orange box so that it can be seen and found in a plane wreck. Records a myriad of data streams from the airplane, including the discussion among the crew and between the crew and air traffic control. This data is used to try and reconstruct what went wrong and to use these findings to improve airline safety going forward. Syed spends a considerable amount of time in the first part of this book detailing statistics of airline accidents versus healthcare incidents. Drawing on a range of sources, it would seem that at least in the US, and based on data collected by Johns Hopkins University and published in 2014, that approximately 400,000 patients suffer premature death at the hands of doctors, as a result of preventable harm. This, said one of the authors of the paper, is the equivalent of two 747s crashing every single day. By contrast, and for a similar time period, the airline industry registered 641 deaths. This number is somewhat skewed as the time period includes the Malaysian Airlines crash, um, where 239 people died. The average fatality rate for the airline industry for the same period is measured as one accident for every 8.3 million takeoffs. Syed attempts to try and understand not only why these two industries approach accidents so differently, but also what we can learn about not just failure, but the structure of success. He does this by examining a range of industries and scenarios In a manner that I sometimes found somewhat disconcerting, he seems to hop and pop from one thing to the next, and I felt at times never really gets to the point where he extracts from the specific to the general. The stories and anecdotes are incredibly interesting and add a lot of texture to the book, but they are, at least to my mind, not really what the book is about. I fear that Syed might have forgotten this fact. Buried in each section is indeed some rules and principles, many I felt common knowledge, and I was left wondering what he had added that was new and useful. It could well be that through the passage of time of six years since the book was published, that much of what he suggests is now widely known amongst those interested in the drivers of failure and success. But this aside, I think more could have been done to extract from the book a more cogent thesis. I will attempt through the remainder of this podcast to share with you three important lessons I extracted from Syed's book. Firstly is the nature of failure. Syed suggests that how we, at least at an industry level, engage with failure says a lot about how that failure is dealt with after the fact. Failure in the airline industry is baked into their processes and procedures, 
and every incident is followed up and the lessons for future action and safety are codified and shared across airlines. By contrast, the healthcare industry has an authoritative hierarchy in which doctors are not challenged when mistakes are made. To be fair, I think that the human body may be more complex than a jet engine, but these are both in fact closed loop systems, and over a long enough period of time the markers of success and failure should become apparent. The lesson I believe is to build a system that takes notice, that collects data, take the time to understand what that data means, and then take appropriate action. Of course, learning from our mistakes is, after all, one of the few ways available to us as the average person. But this doesn't always have to be through your own mistakes. And that, I guess, is where education comes in. Because really what education does is codify learning so that you don't have to make the same mistakes that others have made before you. You get to learn with limited downside. This particular aspect of the book reminds me of this wonderful little chestnut I read some time back. The problem with the human race is that we just don't seem to read the minutes from the last meeting. Syed then examines the role of bias, and in particular, cognitive dissonance. For this, he uses the criminal justice system, highlighting how bias enters into decision-making. This section of the book includes an array of stories of victims and their accusers, many wrongfully accused and incarcerated. Of course, the challenge with most criminal justice systems is to try and avoid finding an innocent person guilty, a so-called type 1 error, the error of commission, or letting a guilty, guilty person go free, a type 2 error, an error of omission. Researchers have found that when our core beliefs are challenged by evidence, we suffer from cognitive dissonance, a kind of bias. When our judgment has been incorrect, we either accept that we have been at fault, or we reframe the evidence and deny our fault. We continue with our incorrect assumption, but don't suffer the embarrassment of being wrong. Even well-functioning systems result in failure and all its consequences. Syed, for example, uh, quotes a poll amongst economists, which revealed that less than 10% of economists change their philosophical or economic school of thought, or significantly adapt their assumptions over the lifetime of a career. There is a steadfast belief that we have in what we know to be true. The book includes an absolutely amusing anecdote of an interchange between former US President George Bush and the renowned astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. In it, Tyson publicly calls out Bush on a comment he made post 9-11. It turns out that there is in fact not a single record of Bush ever having said what Tyson alleges. I guess if we wanted, we could put this down to conspiracy theory, but of course in the end, Tyson was forced to publicly apologize, and the story stands as an important testament to what we think we know, and what we imagine happened. The lessons for me are thus about testing all of our biases and assumptions, finding pause before deciding what to do next, so that we can truly understand if it's data we're talking about, or our desire to not be wrong. The final lesson I extracted was around the benefits of marginal gains. In this area, I felt that Syed and I were on common ground. The benefits from incremental advantages uh, in almost every field is beyond dispute, and Syed draws on some wonderful examples, including the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team and the British uh, Team Sky Cycling team, that under the leadership of David Brailsford, and through hundreds of small tweaks, went on to chalk up a number of Tour de France wins after being regarded as the rank outsiders. 
side finds similar gains in the Mercedes Formula One team and suggests that a systematic approach to failure is what drives innovation. In the language of entrepreneurship, and note that Syed does quote the book The Lean Startup in this section, we regard this as incremental advancement, developing a prototype and testing and reiterating over time. This is a laborious and somewhat tedious process, and I think most of us would just want to get on with it, but the evidence is clear. A hypothesis-driven approach to innovation is a precursor to success, and there are few moments where great success emerges from a single iteration. Syed recounts a meeting with James Dyson, the founder of the firm Dyson, who makes, among other things, the world's most expensive vacuum cleaner. Dyson shared how he sees himself as a connecting agent, bringing ideas, problems, research and action together. I absolutely love this idea, and I think it's a really useful term to probably describe what most of us do from day to day, just maybe not with the same economic success of Dyson. Interestingly, the final Dyson vacuum cleaner was preceded by no less than 5,127 prototypes before the team was happy with the final product. So from this, I think we learn that iteration over time is likely to always be the quick fix or a quick win. I know that not all of us have this luxury in terms of both time and money, but I guess to the extent possible in your circumstances, try and think about where you can be more systematic in your innovation and look for a large number of small marginal gains rather than a single magic bullet. Syed, drawing on the work of Stanford professor Carol Dweck, ends his book with a plea for adopting a growth mindset. This felt like something of a letdown at the end, although it does include some interesting anecdotes about David Beckham. I don't suggest that a growth mindset is unnecessary, but rather that the term has now become somewhat overused, and I think in many ways the jig is up. Most of us know what comprises a growth mindset, and that this is a valued and and useful part of our lives, and I think we have learned to game the system when being tested for a fixed or growth mindset. But I guess in the end, a growth mindset is a little bit like vitamins, uh, can't be a bad thing. So in summary, I was left a little wanting by the end of Syed's book. To be fair, the stories and anecdotes were great and offered a unique view of a range of different sectors and industries. However, I feel that he could have done more and gone a little further in extracting for the rest of us the broad general lessons. Reviewing the book reminded me, sadly, a little of my own school reports, where the most commonly used phrase was, Jonathan can do better. I really hope Matthew Syed doesn't take that too personally. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope you found it interesting and useful. Remember to download the companion infographic, And as always, feel free to share these with your community. I hope you have a wonderful week ahead.